Peter, we got Shannon on the line. What do you want to ask him? How do you weed out partners, good and bad? Look for partnerships that have value to everyone more than just you have a deal and I have some money. We have to be partners. This is the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast, and I'm your host, Brian Briscoe. Now, this podcast is designed for the aspiring apartment investor and literally gives them the opportunity to ask the questions that will help them get to the next level. So if you're an aspiring apartment investor, this podcast is for you. Now, this podcast is brought to you by the Tribe of Titans Multifamily Educational Community. It's your one-stop shop for learning how to succeed at apartment investing. Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast. I'm your host, Brian Briscoe. I'm very excited for today's show. It's another one of our Ask the Expert episodes, and we've got a couple of Pacific Northwest people on the line with us today. We've got Shannon Rubnett, who is currently in Boise, Idaho, and Peter Chagay, who's active duty army at Fort Lewis McCord, just south of Seattle. That said, as is tradition, our experienced investor is up to the plate first. Shannon, welcome. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate you having me. And to both of you guys, thank you for your service. That's pretty awesome. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks. All right. Well, Shannon, do us a favor. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I grew up in a real estate family. In fact, just last week, I was with Robert Kiyosaki, and he reminded me that I'm that one guy that told him that his book did nothing for him. Because (laughs) quite honestly, I grew up at a dinner table full of poor dad conversations. My mom was a real estate broker and everything. And my dad was a developer. And I always heard about 1031s and we should sell this and we should buy this and we should rent this. And my dad retired at 50 from cash flow. He was yeah. able to get out of the grind and everything. And I wasn't going to do any of that, Brian. I, I'd, I'd seen my fill of the late nights and the missing birthday parties because the concrete was not doing what it was supposed to do. And I was going to go to college. I was informed on my first day of college that I had to keep coming back. And I really didn't like that part, first of all. Um, But then there was the whole process. And I was watching my younger brother make money building houses. And I was really kind of starting to do some math about how long college was going to take me to get where I could be independent of that and and pay back what, what I was borrowing and all that stuff. I quickly pivoted out of there and went to work in residential. I built a couple houses. Mm -hmm. I had this one particular homeowner that cured me of ever wanting to build a house again. I went into commercial. I built everything from schools to hospitals, city halls, fire stations, police stations, large retail, warehouses, multifamily. And as I grew in that career, I realized that I got tired of working for everybody else because I could go out there and I could build a building. And as soon as I was done doing all the work, they got all the benefit. Now they paid for that. But if I could start to put some of these things together for myself, then I could keep the cash flow that they were getting once I was done. Because the minute I was done, they didn't keep paying me. You know, that was kind of one of the deals that we had. I'll build it, you pay me, and then we're done. And so I began to work with a couple of partners here, a guy here, a guy there that liked what I was doing and was willing to write some checks. And we got involved in partnerships. But I quickly found out that my ability to bring deals to the table outgrew their ability to write checks. Mm-hmm. And so I was constantly looking for new check writers. And then about two and a half years ago, I stumbled into the world of syndication that allowed mm-hmm. me to essentially use retail investors, people who were tired of flipping houses or trying residential realtors to find single family home product or whatever that wanted to partner up. 
wanted to not do any of the work, but wanted to reap the benefits. And so I got into that world. And since then, we've had quite a bit of success, but it's just been the ability to build more, do more quicker, provide more, you know, and as we know right now, we're in a housing shortage. Yeah. And that, that housing shortage has been around for a while and it's, my understanding is growing every year. So it's it's a business where a lot of people are going to be able to do fairly well for quite a while if you if you believe supply and demand economics. I love that. So you started started building houses, went bigger and bigger and bigger. And you know, I'm basically boiling this down to, you know, something very simple. Saw the other side of the fence where they were making passive income, where they, they were setting up income streams for themselves instead of being transactional. And now, if I understand right, you're on both sides of the equation. I'm definitely on both sides. I mean, we develop most of our stuff is ground up. We've got 250 units under construction currently with another 800 in the pipeline. We've got deals from Washington to Florida. We've got some industrial. We develop, we're doing some value add stuff, and we're helping retail investors invest in their future in asset classes that are typically reserved for Wall Street. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great, great model. I love the syndication model. Now, so when you were transitioning, you said you you made a couple partnerships with check writers, and you said you started realizing that you could bring deals to the table faster than they could write checks. How did you start finding new people to invest? That was a hard transition for me because, believe it or not, Brian, I'm an introvert. Mm-hmm. And most of the people that I wanted to talk to were under the age of 18. They were my kids. And so I didn't really enjoy going out and finding new people to talk to. I just wanted to go hang out with my family. I started out my syndication career asking people to help me. Mm -hmm. And I quickly realized, Brian, it's not about me. I mean, I have a problem that I need to solve for me. If I approached it that way, people don't really want to solve your problem. They want your help to solve their problem. Mm -hmm. And so when I started to look at it and say, hey, you know what, Brian, what is it I can help you with? Well, you know, my problem is I just paid too much in taxes and I really don't like doing that. You know, Brian, I might have a solution for that. Or would you be open to looking at how real estate can reduce your tax burden? When I began to approach it like that, it became conversational. Yeah. Um, And it became something that it wasn't me beating my head against the wall going, oh my gosh, I got to find a rich guy that can, can write a check for a million bucks. I began to find ordinary people that had tax problems. They had inheritance that they'd never had $250,000 before in their life. And they'd really, mm-hmm. they'd exchange that for their mother's presence again, any day, but they had this and they had to do something with it, right? Yeah. They, they received a settlement or something. And I just saw where helping these people solve a problem that they didn't anticipate or didn't know how to fix was the basis that created the relationships that have led us to where we're at now. Yeah, absolutely. And I I love that transition in mentality. And incidentally, I went through the same thing, same process. And I realized that we had a product that helped other people. It was a game changer for me. Just, Just like you were saying for you, it had that effect on me to where raising money from other people, raising capital became a lot easier just by making that one single switch for me. It really does. And like most people will tell you, Brian, 85% 85% of this game and most games is in your head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that, that's one script that I had to rewrite inside my head. It wasn't a light bulb moment. You know, I, I wish it was. It was It was something that I learned probably over the course of several months. That You learned yeah, it from I did. 
It could have been several years, actually. But, uh, you know, from when I when I really started raising capital to when I started realizing that I had opportunities that other people were looking for. And you mentioned it. It's it's stuff that a lot of people outside of Wall Street don't have access to. So we're we're bringing a product to people that is going to do them a lot of good and in turn do us a little bit of good, too. I love hearing about that. So let's talk about one of the projects you've been involved with. So pick your first or favorite and and let us know some of the things that that you guys do. So we exited a project in January and it was kind of the last of my joint venture single partnerships. But it, you know, it was one that we we got involved with and and we built 180 units of ground up. We had to get some rezoning stuff done. We had to do a subdivision. I mean, it was a four-year process. We started it late 17 and just exited in 22. But we were able to build 180 units. We extended 1,100 feet of road, all brand new, new clubhouse, everything like that. And actually, when we sold, we set the bar for sales price in our market. From there, we were able to transition into a couple other deals uh, that we're doing. Really bringing new product to an area is something that takes a little bit of expertise. I've grown a lot in that for sure. What I what I thought I was doing right, this, you know, that last one, it was one of those. I'm kind of glad I sold it because the things I would do different, I get to do. That's that's the creative part of me that loves that. But, you know, we've just been able to see that. And everybody thinks that building multifamily is so hard. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you, Brian, you're building the same building 19 times. Yeah. You know, so if you don't have it figured out by the third time, there's really something wrong with you, right? <laughs> but you keep building it and you keep building it. And, and and now you've got a beautiful complex that is got the grounds involved and everything like that. And it's just, for me, that's a part of it that I think I, I really like. And seeing that go from a field to a vision to a place that houses 180 families is pretty mm-hmm. cool. And then obviously the day after closing, when you see your bank account swell. That's a pretty cool day too. And then looking at how you're going to your next deal and and helping your next group of partners mm-hmm. get that same realization to their bank accounts. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, something I, I realized, and once again, took me a long time to realize, but taking an open feel to 180 unit apartment complex, that's the ultimate value add. I mean, a lot it of- It really apart- is. Yeah. A lot of apartment investors call a value add where you're you're taking something that's you know 15, 20 years old and trying to make it look like brand new. But the the ultimate ultimate value add, in my opinion, is going from nothing to to something. That's really getting to the highest and best use of, of a piece of land. Well, the other thing too, Brian, you know, you've got, I mean, there's the sticks and stones, right? I mean, think about a car. Anybody can build a car. You and I can build a car. And maybe we can build it for less than sixty thousand dollars that Chevrolet is going to charge you for that new pickup. Mm-hmm. Probably not in that particular case, but we could definitely do that. Mm-hmm. But when you convert that, and this is where the, I mean, the real thing that that I, I couldn't quite figure out as a young man that I saw later that my father was doing was he was taking a million dollars worth of blocks and trusses and concrete and asphalt and creating something that with the cash flow based on the cap rate was now worth a 1.3 or 1.4 million dollars mm-hmm. that was before the tenant moved in was only worth a million bucks. So to really be able to do that and go, wow, we took the current project we got is 68 million dollars of of construction, take 68 million dollars and turn that into 85 just by adding tenants. Mm-hmm. That's amazing, right? Yeah. 
And that's also the largest value add that you'll likely add in the history of the complex mm-hmm. is you're really taking it from the bolts, the nuts, the blocks, the drywall, and assembling it all and doing it in the right fashion and then making it valuable. And then adding that cash stream, turning it into a business. That's that's the big piece right there. Good point. Exactly. So now you, you mentioned housing crisis and, and, and whatnot with a lot of demographics changing. I mean, we, we both live in Idaho, which is gotten a lot of people from California moving in and Oregon and Washington as well. A lot of people from the coast moving towards here. How has that affected what you do in, over the last couple of years? It's interesting because it's affected the demographics in Idaho a lot. I think like a lot of towns or cities, whatever. When I was a kid growing up here, if you lived in an apartment, your parents had bad credit. Mm-hmm. Everybody owned a home. But now we're having people that are not used to living in houses that want that lock and leave lifestyle. They moved to Idaho not to mow the lawn, but to go hike in the hills, to to go river rafting, to go fly fishing, to go do those things. And so they don't want the responsibilities that we're all thinking about. And now, as you see interest rates changing too, a lot of those people that may have wanted the housing are now gravitating back toward the apartment lifestyle because it, it is really a way of life. It's not something Mm -hmm. that is your step from your parents' house to your own home. In a lot of cases, it is the desired end result. And we've we've seen that as we're building these new complexes and we're building them with granite countertops and or quartz countertops and high-end flooring and nice finishes and clubhouses that are better than any movie theater you could go into because they have those upscale finishes that people want to go use that as a place to meet their neighbors and to have hang out and, and be a part of a community. Yeah, that, that's huge. Now, I mean, I, w- I was 20 years in the military. Most people know that, but I actually rented more than I owned. And I'll be honest, you know, we own our house right now, but there there sure are times when, you know, something breaks and I, I wish I was renting. Yeah. Right. Talk about the that, lifestyle. You know, it's yeah. a one payment does do it all. You know, yeah. there's not, you're not replacing air conditioning. You're not doing all those kinds of things. When the roof leaks, it's not your problem. Mm-hmm. All of those kind of things, right? Yeah. So, I mean, there there is definitely a lifestyle issue and I, I can definitely see, I've got my, my youngest daughter is in second grade right now, but when she graduates high school, I could see me living in an apartment again, you know, I mean, just back into exactly what you're talking about, you know, the ground right. countertops. And the only issue I'd have is where, you know, where would we put the grandkids, you know, where, where right. are they going to fit in everything? Yeah. I, I could definitely see that. I mean, the lifestyle is, is huge. You know, being able to, to live the lifestyle you want, I think is a lot more important now than it was 10, 20 or 30 years ago. So, well, and, and you know, Brian, we're actually designing another complex uh, that is kind of geared a little bit toward you right? Mm-hmm. In that life has gone full circle and we're actually putting in three guest suites for rent, right? Oh, nice. So when the grandkids do come to town, there's a two bedroom apartment that's available for you to rent for up to six nights in a row, right? That's good so we're, we're really kind of thinking through that because it is becoming, it's not a transitionary process. It is what we're here for. Yeah. Yeah. I love that idea. It's a great idea. Anyway, let's, let's uh, shift gears a little bit. A question I'd like to ask everybody more along the lines of motivation, uh, but what is your big burning? Why? Funny enough, a lot of people do this for the money and that's definitely part of it. But you know, one of the things that I saw Brian in 2008 was I saw wall street get filthy rich on all the poor decisions that they made. And I saw 
myself, my family, my friends, everybody I knew in the construction industry get destroyed. And as I began that process of getting out of that downturn and into the next upswing, I knew that I had to figure out a way to not only protect myself, but protect other people because I didn't want to get in a situation that I was, I had my money in the stock market. I had my money in a place I couldn't get to because it was very clear in 2008 that Wall Street didn't care about me. I mean, they I sold all these, all these crappy loans, right? And, and now the stock market's going back down and people are getting crushed again and retirements are evaporating and there's no real asset behind it. As I kind of began my journey again, I just realized that I had to figure out a way to help myself and others get into cash flowing assets that would protect us against upside, downside, mm-hmm. and, and really continue to produce results, regardless of what the morons with the money on Wall Street did to us. And so that's really kind of been my transition into the syndicated model and into some of the other things that we're doing to help others learn what we know so that they don't have to fall into that same trap of put your money in a 401k, an IRA, and hope it's there in 40 years. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's something that that I noticed. I mean, I, I bought my first single family home as a rental in 2007. And, you know, the market crashed and I mean, it was, it was my first one. I was, I was a little nervous. I mean, I, I think I had more confidence than I should have at the time, but uh, here was, here is the the great thing about that property is it always cash flowed. You right. know, it didn't matter what the value was at the time because it was cash flowing. Yeah. And I knew that over time, you know, whatever dip there was in value would come back and, um, that that's one thing that I think where where we're sitting right now with where the economy's at and where the projected future's at. You know, if you can get into a cash flowing real estate asset that's tangible with real value, you're going to be okay for a yeah. long time. Yeah, so. and that, that's what a lot of people forgot in 2007, 2008. They were sold the idea that they they could have their McMansion on a fifty thousand dollar salary. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of education that we want that we put together to help people to understand this is what you should be doing so that you're in a position, just like you said, Brian, that you're not over your skis and it's cash flowing because in times like 2008, 9, and 10, rentals didn't get destroyed, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and and I don't think as we see interest rates continue to rise, I don't think rental prices uh or rents are going to get hurt at all. In fact, I think it's going to improve them. Yeah. I mean, inflation, rents are going to go up about the rate of inflation, which, you know, last I checked is over 8%. So, you know, the rents are still going to go up. And even in 2008, you know, the rents went up, you know, inflation adjusted rents went down. And this is, I looked at the stats. This is like nationwide, you know, not, I'm I'm sure you you can pick a Metro and prove me wrong, but nationwide rents went up. Throughout that 2008, the the entire recession, 2008 to 2010, rents went up quarter by quarter, every single quarter adjusted for seasonalities, you know, rents went up. So anyway, so yeah, I think, I think great, great points there. What we see going on in the economy right now. Yeah, there's going to be some issues. There's going to be some bumpy roads, but yeah, I think most of the signs are still pointing that multifamily is going to still be a great investment. Well, I completely agree with you. And, and you're talking about real assets, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's multifamily, whether it's industrial, whether it's office, whether it's retail, 
you own something that's real. And like you said, Brian, bought correctly, financed correctly, uh, tenantized correctly, it will always produce a return. Yeah. You know, I was just thinking about something. You talked about taking $68 million worth of stuff. And then once you put tenants in there, there, there's you know a lot more money into it, but or there, there's more value there. But I wonder, you know, when when you look at replacement costs, that's that's one way to put a value on real estate is the replacement cost. I, I'm curious, you know, if if there is a dip in the marketplace, construction costs are going up. I wonder if that's going to cause a somewhat of an artificial bottom for for real estate prices. Anyway, well, thinking out know, loud there, but your well, and it's funny that you mentioned that because if you think back to the last appraisal you have. Replacement cost is one of the things that they do put in the appraisals, right? Mm-hmm. So there's the cash, uh, there, there's the, the value, which is derivative of the cash flow. Uh, there's the replacement cost. And then there's the comps of what's around you. Yeah. And so when you look at that, we are resetting a little bit because if you remember 2008, 2009, cars got cheaper too. Mm-hmm. You know. financing and $5,000 rebates were everywhere. So you're going to see window prices because of supply and demand will go from an, you know, an eight week lead time, which we've never had before in our lives Mm -hmm. uh, to now you can get them again in a week, like you used to. And the price is going to come back to more of a normal, normal number. Yeah. That's something I hadn't thought of before, but uh, just, just connected some dots there. I'll I'll look into that a lot later. Anyway, last question we got for you and then we'll bring Peter on, but uh, what's next for you? You know, I I hate to say it, but more of the same. You know, I mean, I love what I do. I love putting the deals together. Um, we've got a couple of LOIs out. We're working on a couple other things. You know, continuing to educate people on how they can uh, reduce their tax bill, uh, get to a zero sum game with the IRS, and set up passive income uh, that's going to take them out of their job and allow them to live the life they want. Yeah, I love that idea of that zero sum game with the. I mean. I, I haven't paid a whole lot of federal taxes since I, I started buying real estate, to be honest with you. That the depreciation is a lovely, lovely thing. So, of course, it's September, so I haven't filed my personal income taxes yet, but uh, I, I'm expecting a, a big zero on the bottom line of my taxes this year, too. But right. uh, yeah, yeah. And that's always a, that's always a great feeling. It's like you you won something, you outsnuck the sneaker, you know? Yeah, right. Now, I mean, here's here's something interesting. I mean, and and for many, many years, I filed my own taxes. And and last year was the first time I paid somebody else to file my own taxes. Um, But I did my own numbers and I was was happy with with what it was. And I thought, you know what? It it is starting to get more complicated than I'm comfortable with and send it off to a CPA. And man, my CPA found a lot more than I did. But uh Anyway, yeah, makes um, you wonder if uh, going backward might be a good idea. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. So, but yeah, so end end of the day, yeah, I'm I'm very happy, you know, not paying taxes or at least federal taxes. I All I right. pay a whole lot of property taxes though. Yeah, um, yeah, and you create a lot of jobs with what you're doing. Yeah, so whole lot of property taxes. Anyway, that said, shifting gears one more time, we're going to introduce Peter. So, Peter, welcome to the show today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And thanks for your service. Very much appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for the support. Yeah. Um, So yeah, I've been a little bit about me. I've been in the army for about four years now. Mm -hmm. Um, I joined when I was 18 out of St. Louis, Missouri. Um, My first unit was Hawaii. My first duty station was Hawaii. I am a Chinook maintainer. So I fixed the the, the flying school bus as I like to call it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, I was in Hawaii for three years and um, 
when I was in Hawaii, I started to invest some of my income. So mm-hmm. I put money in my TSP, I put money in stocks, and I also did Turo, which is a car rental app. Yeah. Um, I made actually a lot of money doing that in Hawaii, renting out my um, just a basic car, a Hyundai to tourists. I was making about a thousand dollars a month. Um, so that's when I got my first taste of cash flow and um, investing. And I also sold Nike sneakers on the side, um, bought a lot of stocks. Um, mm-hmm. When the pandemic hit, I bought like five shares of Tesla at 200 bucks. So mm-hmm. I've pretty much made a I made a lot of money there sold uh before I really hit a thousand bucks but uh mm-hmm. yeah did a lot of investing in Hawaii and then towards the end of my tour I had a goal of flipping a house once I get back to the mainland so all that cash flow and all that money that I saved I was going to use all that towards uh, rehab on a home mm-hmm. and it was during that research that I discovered multifamily and <clears throat> just by doing the numbers I realized that I could hit my financial goals a lot quicker and um, a lot with not really less work, but less tiring work on one single property um, through multifamily. So I shifted my focus and I shifted my research um, towards that. And I joined a mastermind um, through ADPI, Active Duty Passive Income, um, fellow service members, veterans, and spouses that are also into real estate. And um, yeah, I just finished the mastermind about two weeks ago. So now looking to syndicate my first property. Love it. Love it. And I mean, having having spent a little time in the military myself, I mean, I, I love how you were looking for opportunities. You know, I think a lot of people just, you know, I mean, you're what we affectionately call a wrench turner, you know, in, in the Marine Corps, you know, you're, you're one of those guys that makes sure the helicopters fly all the time. And I think a lot of, a lot of guys fall into the trap of just turning wrenches every day, you know, showing up every day and turning wrenches, but, you know, you looked at the opportunities and, you know, with an average car, we started making a thousand bucks a month. You know, I, I love, I love that, you know, that, uh, you're able to just, just do that. And then, um, yeah, same thing, recognizing value. When I, when I first realized the power of multifamily, you know, it was just like, man, I got, I got to do that. I got to do that. I got to do more and more and more of that. So um, anyway, good, good to hear that from you. And I mean, first duty station, Hawaii, you got lucky. So um, <laughs> yeah, Hawaii, Hawaii was great. Um, if I always say, if anybody has the opportunity to go there for sure, cost of living was definitely on the high side. Yeah. Um, funny coming here to Washington, everyone's like, this is, this place is expensive to live. But to me, everything here is a discount coming from there. So, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah. So I mean, I, I moved from DC to Idaho and I mean, speaking of differences, you know, I remember the, the one person that I knew that lives here in Idaho falls, uh, when I moved texted me and he's like, man, you're moving here at the wrong time. Traffic is terrible. <laughs> a lot of road construction, you know, and I was just scratching my head and like, yeah, I mean, you moving from, from a higher cost of living area to Seattle, you were just like, eh, I got this. Yeah. It's, it's, it's cake, honestly, yeah. not too bad so far, but I yeah. got this. Well, cool. So, uh, you, I mean, you talked a little bit about some of the reasons why you like multifamily, but let's, let's dig a little deeper into there. So what's, what's your big burning? Why? I remember during the pandemic, I happened to, I was still in Hawaii. I was in the army for a couple of years at that point. I remember only working about one to two days per week. 
essentially, I really had a small taste of what financial freedom looked like mm-hmm. sitting in my barracks room, still getting paid on the first and the 15th and being told, don't come to work, yeah. wake up, call my supervisor. I'm alive and I'll turn on Netflix. And I did that on repeat for a few weeks. Mm-hmm. Eventually I went back to work and everything, but I realized that there's much more than what I'm doing now. The military is great and I will never regret joining the military, but really my big burning why is to have not necessarily all the money in the world, but the freedom to do more with my time more with my family, be able to give more to my church and to my community and to help others as well. And I realized this a lot at work whenever we're sitting in the break room talking to the guys, everybody talks about what they're going to do when they get out. Me personally, I love my job. I love fixing aircraft, Mm -hmm. but outside the army, I don't think that's something I would like to do. I noticed the similarity with what everybody wants to do is really to have the freedom to do more and to be at home more with their families and the people that they love. Love it. I love it. I think that's a, that's a common trend for most people is being able to do what you want when you want. Thanks for sharing that. I appreciate it very much. Definitely. Now we come to my favorite part of the show. Peter, we got Shannon on the line. What do you want to ask him? One question that I have, I have a few questions. As a brand new syndicator, how do you weed out partners, good and bad? on the general partnership side and on the limited partner side? Well, you know, Peter, the thing is, it's all about knowledge, right? Just because you have a deal doesn't mean you and I should partner. I mean, what do you want to do with that deal? Are you good at that deal? What's your track record? How do you handle conflict resolution? There's a lot of things that I look at, and, and I look at every deal as a three-legged stool. You've got the deal, and you've got the expertise, the resume, the know-how, and then you've got the money. And really, they're equal because you can't do anything mm-hmm. if you don't have all three. You can be the smartest guy in the world and have the deal, but without the dollars, you're stuck. But if you're the guy that's got the dollars thinks he's the most important guy in the deal, he's going to say that he deserves all the reward. And the person that has the other two is going to feel unwanted and not valued. And so it's not going to be a great partnership. I always want to make sure that is what am I bringing to the deal? And what does the other person have that I need? And do I have the ability to learn from them so that I can get more than just that need met today? Don't give a man a fish, teach a man to fish. So if I've got the deal and I've got the know-how, but I don't have the money, I want to work with somebody that will teach me how to better raise money so that he and I don't have to be partners next time. At the end of the day, if we're great partners and we get along, we're going to be partners for a long time. Because if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Look for partnerships that have value to everyone more than just you have a deal and I have some money. We have to be partners. Yeah, I'll I'll take it one step further. I don't disagree with anything, but just adding to what he said is alignment. I mean, just make sure that you guys have similar goals and similar ideas as far as alignment. There's a difference between, you know, partnering on one deal and deciding to form a company together and partnering on many deals. But if you're going to do the latter, if you're going to, you know, form a company and partner on many deals, make sure that the alignment is complete and it's a deep alignment. It's not a very superficial you know, hey, we want to make a lot of money alignment because, you know, that goes away really, really quickly. Make sure you're aligned. And then you asked a question about the same thing with LPs. I think you just need to get to know the LPs. 
And something that I've found to be very, very useful is to set a fairly high bar on minimum investment amount. Typically, $50,000 is what minimum investment is. Because a lot of times when you get into people who want to invest, you know, ten dollars or $5,000, they're typically, they don't understand the deal very well. They don't understand investing. And it's it's a lot more difficult to deal with that type of investor. So one super easy thing to do to, to weed out a lot of LPs that could potentially be problematic and more because of education is just to set a high bar. You know, the other thing too, and I agree with that, Brian, is on the LP side, I won't let anybody invest with me that I haven't had a conversation with. Even though technically as a 506C, I don't have to have a substantive relationship It's funny how a fly in the ointment can cause problems that you don't necessarily need. And so when you're having that conversation, and and I do this a lot because most of what I do is about appreciation, and we don't see a lot of cash flow and development deals in the early stages. So I want to make sure that the people that are investing with me, they understand my investment philosophy. They understand what my goals are. They understand more than just the number on the paper that says, hey, I'm going to get a 17% IRR but it's week one and I don't have a check, right? So just make sure that you know who they are. And I mean, the ones that cause me the most issues are usually the ones with the lowest dollar invested because it is their only $25,000 or they're only 50 grand, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I had a conversation with somebody just recently who asked to come in at a lower amount and that reminded me, that that's why I brought it up because the types of questions they were asking were just like, I could tell you don't understand this deal. You know, maybe we should not do this type stuff. Right, Peter. That you guys mentioned that because I've got two situations where I have one potential investor who's got $4 million and could potentially fund the whole deal, but he has very high expectations. And uh, I think he wants to run the ship for sure. Yeah. Whereas I have another investor who does, who has probably about less than 25K. But at the same time, he also wants to run the ship. In fact, he asked me to to give him a list of every single potential investor for this deal, which I have never done a deal before, but that question seemed a little unordinary. Well, the thing is, here's the thing, Peter, people aren't going to, you'll find that 90% of people, maybe as high as 96% of people that get involved in your deals, don't get involved in your deals because they love Charlotte, North Carolina, or they love mobile home parks. They get involved in their deals because of the GP team. They know, like, and trust you guys. And they're there because they have a job that they already do. And they're wanting to invest with you for the purpose of being passive. If they're doing some of the things that these people are doing, and number one, I will never work with a single check writer again. I had great experiences with some. I didn't have awesome experience with others. But the reality is I want to run the show and my expertise says I should. Now, doesn't mean that the guy with the four million bucks can't go find his own show to run. And I would encourage him to do that. And it doesn't mean that the guy with 25 grand can't do the same as you. But it means that this is my show. This is the rules that I'm engaging in. And what this tells me is that you don't trust me. Mm -hmm. And we need to solve that problem first. Because if we don't have a trust issue or if we don't have trust built that you understand that I'm going to take your money and I'm going to do an amazing job with it. I'm going to do the things that I said I was going to do and I'm going to work really hard for you. If we can't get past that, 
that's really kind of the end of the conversation. And God bless you. I hope you have a wonderful time. I'd love to hear where you go with this, but you're not coming with me. So my next question is, should I wait to invest capital into my own deal or to somebody else's deal? I would say that if there's one thing I would go back and tell my younger self, it would be to go to work for somebody else. Mm -hmm. I've never had a job. I've never worked for anyone else. And I say that in the same sense that as someone that wants to syndicate, how would you know that your syndication is going the right way unless you've been involved in one or multiple other syndications Mm -hmm. to see how that functions and how they've treated you? Because I've learned more from bad situations than I have from good situations, but I've learned from everything. So if you're involved in other syndications and you see how it goes and you get involved, obviously do them the favor that you would ask that that a LP does with you and stay quiet, right? Mm -hmm. Watch, observe, be involved, see how that went. Because the reality is you will learn more from that situation than you're ever going to learn from any of these boot camps or mentorships or anything like that, because you need to see, you deal with this all the time. You read a manual to fix an airplane. Mm -hmm. But it don't always go the way the manual says. There's that one bolt behind the starter that you can't get to. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. You've got to take it in this sequence. You've got to follow this. You've got to follow that. And until you've actually taken that thing apart, the manual is worthless. Once you've done it, you go back to the manual with with a brand new appreciation of, oh, yeah, that's what they meant right there, right? I mean, how many times you put something together from Ikea only to realize you got to take it apart turn it 90 degrees and start over, right? So I would say to do that for sure, make sure that you are familiar with that. The other thing that it's going to do is it's going to put that on your track record. It's going to put that on your resume. It's going to allow you to say, I understand what an LP is because I've been one, Mm -hmm. right? And I've done this and and I get that. You'll also meet a lot of really great people in that deal. Those would be the reasons why I would definitely do this first And then out of that, build out your resume as to, I've done this, I graduated, now I'm doing this with a qualified team. And lastly, I'm doing this as the lead GP on my own team. A lot of good reasons there. And one thing that I would add is on my first syndication, the very first time that I saw a private placement memorandum was on my first syndication that I was involved with. I mean, it was it was a deal that I found, that I was hustling, that I was bringing to the finish line. At that point, I was sitting down trying to figure out how to explain this to you know, some of the newer investors that I brought to the table. I had never, ever been in that passive investing experience before. So you know, for me, it was, it was a much larger, much steeper learning curve. I had the same decision as like, do I invest with other people or do I keep the money so I can pay my own EMD, so I can invest in my own deals. Yeah, end, end of the day, there, there's value to both. I can't help but think that I would probably would have been better served investing with somebody else up front. Anyway, we've got time for one more question, if you got one. Yeah, uh, I think this is a good one for my last question. Uh, what is the right deal size for your first deal? And do you recommend something more turnkey or something with heavy value add? That comes down to the experience and that comes down to the team. If you have someone that has been involved in a lot of heavy value add on the team that knows what costs are and knows what procurement timelines are, you know, right now we've got some headwinds with what's going on in the supply chain. So if you've got a heavy value add, you need to make sure that you've got a proven team that can turn that because 
what we're seeing is we're seeing things taking a lot longer and things costing more than anticipated by the time you can get your hands on them. And that can add up when you're talking about two and 300 units. The other side of that is once you've aligned, like we talked about earlier, the alignment of your team aligns with the deal. And once the deal looks like something that this team is good at, then you can look at how you're going to pull it off. My personal opinion is go with something that almost makes it impossible to screw up. The less you have to do to get to the finish line and get to success is still massive because Mm -hmm. it's your first. I mean, you've got to negotiate the contract. You've got to get the bank financing. You've got to take over operations. You've got to reposition the property management company. You've got to get this thing done. And you've got to then turn around and start putting out all the information, start paying out all the people. While you're doing all those things, you're going to start repainting and replacing and redoing and upgrading and moving tenants out to remodel. I mean, Mm -hmm. you're adding a massive amount of complexity. I would say you want success every single time. Are you going to swing for a home run every single time or just get on first base? Go for that first. Go for that nice, pop the ball, get out there and complete those steps and then tell everybody, I arranged bank financing on a $10 million deal. With that, I would say that purchase price of probably nine to 15 million is going to be about right because that 15 million is going to mean you're going to be raising about $4 million. You're going to be out there growing your network and getting to that place. A lot of times people say, well, I I want to do something small. I want to raise $500,000 to do the deal. You're going to go through all the pain, all the effort to raise a half a million bucks to arrange the financing, to do the changeover, to do the tenant improvements, to do all this stuff on that amount of money. You might as well make it worth your while and create a team where maybe there's three or four or five of you that are bringing in that amount of money that gets that deal done. So that's kind of my thought process. What do you think, Brian? I heard somebody, and I've I've always advocated not biting off more than you can chew on your first deal. And you know, m- much of what you said, you know, I a lot of head nods in there. You know, you don't want to screw up your first deal. Basically, find something that can get you in the game, get you on base. And I love that baseball reference. You know, go for the single, don't go for the home run. You know, find something that you can handle. I listened to Brian Burke on a podcast recently. And he brought a point out that that I'm I'm going to reiterate here is he basically said, you have a lot more room to recover on small deals. You're going to make mistakes on your first deal. All right. A smaller deal, you can recover a lot easier from some of the errors, the beginner mistakes that you're going to make than on a larger deal. Where small versus large is on, on the spectrum, you know, it's all relative, but find something modest, find something that is within your grasp or within your skill set to be able to manage. I think, you know, Shannon's saying a lot of the same things. You know, if you haven't done a heavy value add, you probably shouldn't be doing a heavy value add on your first one. I would say find something modest, get yourself in the game and then scale from there. Get on base and then start that rally, you know, then get a couple of base hits and then you start swinging for the fences maybe. Anyway, I hope that helps, but we are pretty much out of time. So we're going to cut it off right here and got one question for each of you to finish things up. And Shannon, you get to go first. How can listeners learn more about you? Easiest way is just send me an email at connect at shannonromnet.com. And I will show you all the ways that you can connect with me from there. We schedule a call and talk more about how we can work with you. You can work with us and learn more. All right. And we'll put a link uh, with that email address in the show notes. And Peter, same question for you. Yeah, you can uh, email me at peter at 
capstonesyndicate.com. Brian will link that in the show notes. And also I'm on LinkedIn at Peter Chege. There's only very few people with that name, so it shouldn't be too hard to find. <laughs> All right. Yeah, we'll have his email address and a link to his LinkedIn profile in the show notes as well. So if you want to connect with any one of these gentlemen, go ahead and hit the show notes and all that information will be right there. That's it. Thanks a lot, gentlemen, for coming on the show. Very much appreciate your time today. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast by the Tribe of Titans. If you're still listening, you obviously liked it. So go ahead and subscribe to the podcast. Leave a five-star rating and review if you haven't already. And then make sure to check out our YouTube channel, which incidentally has a ton of video content that you'll also enjoy and learn from. Now, if you're interested in being on the show, go to our website, diaryofanapartmentinvestor.com and fill out the questionnaire on the website. And for more educational content and for more information about our educational community, check us out at thetribeoftitans.info.